welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jen randolph Riza, Visiting Professor of Law at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, where she teaches business organizations and other business law classes. We will discuss her article, Moving Ahead, Finding Opportunities for Transactional Training in Remote Legal Education, which will be published in the William Mitchell Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks very much, Brian. Really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this paper because like so many of our colleagues, I've been teaching remotely for part of the spring and all of this fall, and I expect to be doing it again in the spring. And it's been a real learning experience. And you've got a lot of kind of background and history doing this that many of us don't. And I found your paper a really helpful sort of set of reflections and observations about how we can do this better. So thanks for writing it. I found it really useful. Well, thanks, Brian. Yeah, I'm glad that you find it that you found it really useful. That was my hope. Uh, because I am at Mitchell Hamlin, I've been teaching online just a couple of years longer than uh, than most people had to make that shift in the pandemic um, and had an opportunity to kind of try some things, see what worked, um, and also learn some best practices from other disciplines, including the science of teaching and learning. Um, and so my goal was to try to package that in an easily digestible format um, to help other folks teach well online. So Jen, could you say a little bit of something about your own background and how it informs your approach to teaching business organizations and other transactional-oriented law school classes? Yes. So I am not an expert in online teaching. Um, I I was a practicing attorney until about two and a half years ago, uh, both at a big firm in Minneapolis and then as an in-house counsel. Um, But kind of fell in love with teaching and so have been striving to figure out how to teach well and how to teach online well. Um, But looking back to where I came from, my real passion is how do I make sure to expose my students to transactional practice? Because I feel like law school has historically done a great job of showing students how to be litigators, maybe not as good of a job at transactional practice. What do you think the demands of teaching students about transactional practice are that might be different from more traditional approaches to law school teaching and kind of pedagogical methods that law school professors tend to use? Yeah, I think one of the things that we have to do in law school to prepare people for transactional practice is to actually show them the kinds of paperwork uh, that they would be doing, right? Transactional practice is document driven. So to the case, so to the point that we can actually get students used to, you know, looking at contracts and figuring out how to interpret them. And secondly, in that position of planning um, on behalf of the client rather than arguing on behalf of the client. Transactional practice requires us to make a plan ahead of time that works within the confines of the law as opposed to create arguments after the fact about why the law should support our client's position. So it's a totally different way of interacting with the case law and statutes um, that I think it's important to expose students to in law school um, in parts that they can find a fit in the profession um, and see if, like I found, 
uh, transactional law makes a lot of sense to them. Well, so for better or for worse, law schools have been sending a significant number of graduates out to become transactional lawyers for a long time. Uh, Historically, how did the training to actually learn how to do that kind of learning take place? And why do you think there's a need to sort of change it up now? That's a good question. I think the the common understanding is that the big firms would train their junior associates on how to be transactional lawyers, that that training happened, you know, in person once you got one of those junior associate spots. And it was a little bit of a trial by fire. I am not sure in practice that that ever worked particularly well, in part because the the firms other than the big firms, you know, simply don't have the resources to do the kind of detailed training that is required. And we have students who go out to small and mid-sized firms or even become solo practitioners. Um, and so, of course, they're not going to get that kind of training. Uh, in addition, we have people who want to be in-house counsel, and we need to make sure that they have the training as well. So. I think there's been a general growing understanding uh, that law schools could do a better job of preparing people to be more practice ready in a transactional sense. And I try to review and detail in my paper a lot of the discussion that's happened on that from other scholars and from the ABA and so forth about the need for better transactional training. Right. So in the paper, you talk about sort of this survey almost that you've done of approaches that other law professors have taken or suggested specific to teaching transactional lawyering, as well as some examples of things you yourself have done. I wonder if you could kind of make these observations a little more concrete and say a little something about what kinds of pedagogical techniques law professors might introduce to sort of highlight and advance uh, learning in this area? You bet. Yeah. As you say, I sort of divide it into two categories of techniques. One is using simulations during law school of transactional practice, especially deal practice. Uh, We've seen a lot of law schools develop especially specialized 3L classes that really give students a fantastic exposure uh, to the process of deal making um, and the kind of contractual uh, negotiations and provisions that they will have to be doing in practice. But as I said, those are usually uh, sort of considered capstone classes. They're 3L, they're small. um, So they're really appealing to your small group of individuals who know that they want to go out and be deal lawyers and helping them be ready. The the other um, place that the literature has really uh, coalesced around this is the possibility of teaching transactional skills in a more general way in the fundamental business organizations class, also sometimes called business associations, or split into its constituent parts as agency and uncorporate business entities and corporations. So whatever you call it, I call it biz orgs. That's my that's my familiar term that my uh, my students uh, hear me use all the time. So the biz orgs class is a great place to introduce students to transactional practice because most students take biz orgs 
uh, usually in their 2L year. It's a sort of fundamental bar prep class. Uh, you're exposing students to a lot of basics of business terms, and it's easy to include basics of business law and transactional practice in that course. Part of why I talk about this in my paper and was attracted to this idea is because indeed that's a course that I have taught many times at Mitchell Hamlin, both in our remote and our in-person settings. Um, and so I wanted to give examples of how I have found that I've been able to work transactional practice skills into that course. The pandemic has introduced a lot of us somewhat unexpectedly to the prospect of remote and or hybrid legal instruction. And a lot of people are really struggling with that. In in your paper, you suggest that it can not only be as good, but in some ways maybe even help us improve on legal pedagogy. I wonder if you could talk about why that is and why you see this moment of transition as an opportunity. I think one of the good things that has come out of this need to shift to remote pedagogy is that it actually has people thinking about pedagogy and and legal education in a way that probably a lot of people had not been thinking about it before. Um, it requires us to make various shifts in order to be effective teachers. And so that's why I called my paper Moving Ahead, Finding Opportunities uh, in Remote Legal Education. Uh, now that we are thrust into this new circumstance, how can we how can we find those opportunities? Well, so one of the opportunities you discuss is around the sort of difference between synchronous and asynchronous remote education and kind of how we think about operationalizing the two in relation to how we deliver content and um, engage with our students. I wonder if you could talk about sort of how you think about those kind of two different kind of modalities of teaching and how we can use them most effectively. So we may ha we may not have been uh, familiar with the terms asynchronous and synchronous seven months ago, uh, but I'm guessing that people are now. Uh, I like to think of it as what are we doing at the same time and what are we doing on our own time? And legal education has always been a blend, um, even in sort of your real classic Socratic method. We expect students to spend many hours uh, reading the textbook and the cases and thinking about those cases in order to talk about them in class. That is not that far from what has been called the flipped classroom model right, where we expect students to prepare for class um, through readings or watching lectures and so forth, and then come to class ready to apply. So another way that law school can look in the flipped classroom model, and especially in the remote model, is to really rely on problems and exercises to help students apply what they've learned and extend their learning during the synchronous class period. So in the pandemic, um, especially, I have moved into a pattern where I just have about half as many hours synchronously with my students as I had before. And all of those hours are hands-on application. I tape my lectures beforehand. They can watch them at their convenience. They like that because they can stop and take notes. 
they can speed it up <laughs> uh, if they need to. Um, and they can do it on their own time around the other things that they have going on. But when they come to class, then I expect them to be ready to, to dig in and extend their learning. I wonder if you have any sort of specific pointers as to what that kind of flip classroom and kind of rethinking of the relationship between the synchronous and asynchronous elements of legal pedagogy ought to look like. In other words, what have you found to be most effective? Any kind of tips or pointers for people who are kind of feeling their way through it for the first time and figuring out how to shift from a more kind of all in-person experience from the professor's standpoint to one where the professors are more involved in the asynchronous elements of the class? You know, I found it helpful to consider whether I want my students to read a problem or exercise beforehand to set it up so they can start thinking about it. This actually came out of disability accommodations because I have a student who who is sight impaired. Um, and I realized that to the extent that I put a problem up on, you know, the screen behind me or something, that's not that doesn't work for him. Um, and so I needed to supply it to him ahead of time, but I found that he had an opportunity to prepare and think deeply in the, in the way that I wanted the other students to prepare and think deeply. So it might, it might be advantageous depending on what you're looking for to give your students the problem ahead of time and ask them to prepare and come to class ready to do it. You also could spring it on them more like a Socratic kind of method where you're asking them to respond to it in real time. I like to try to give students, so back to sort of the training for transactional practice, I like to give them really practical, hands-on activities. Um, this week we will be negotiating a partnership term sheet agreement, uh, or term sheet uh, in lieu of a whole partnership agreement uh, so that it's only <laughs> a page and a half long. Um, and they are going to be asked to work in groups and think about representing one of the two parties and what kinds of partnership terms that they have learned um, would benefit the party that's their client. And so they have to actually apply, um, you know, the, the default rules of RUPA and the ability to change things through private ordering uh, that they have learned in the abstract uh, in class so far. Well, I know that you prepare a lot of asynchronous lectures for your students to listen to, as you said, on their own time before class. Any recommendations or suggestions on that front as to sort of what you find most effective or maybe things you found that like weren't effective and that you needed to change in terms of preparing those kinds of lectures? That's a great question. I suspect that others have learned that they have to make some tweaks uh, from just recording the lecture that they maybe would have delivered in the classroom, you know, two years ago. Um, I have found that I have to do shorter lectures. You want to aim for 10 to 15 minutes a piece. Certainly, you know, you can assign a series of lectures before a class, um, but breaking it up like that makes it easier um, for students and also easier for you to make sure that you hit the important points. It's important to contextualize where each lecture sits 
within your class. Um, I even start most of my lectures with a slide that says, why do we care about this? Why do we care whether an agent can bind a principal to a contract, for instance? And then I try to use, you know, specific visuals or uh, examples as I go to try to make it clear to the students. That way, each lecture stands on its own um, and I can reuse them from class to class. This semester, I retaped some of my lectures for Introduction to Business Organizations, but um, most of the work that I did up front when, the first time that I taught this class still stands. It's still, you know, good expressions of what the law is and why it's important. And then when we get together in class, we can have a more um, flowing and personalized discussion of uh, where the students are at with reaction to the material. Well, I know you do a lot of hands-on elements in your classes as well, and I'd like to talk about those in a moment. But but first, I was really interesting, interested if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you approach the discussion element of of the class. So when it comes to sort of discussing the lecture material and discussing the law and sort of learning in that remote but synchronous context, what have you found effective as ways of sort of promoting student learning in that environment and operationalizing this flipped classroom approach? Yes, a couple of thoughts on that. I think one of the keys to successful discussion is safety. It's making students feel that they can contribute without it being high stakes. And one of the things that I explicitly tell my students is, I want you to be able to learn by making mistakes. Making mistakes and failure are some of the best ways that we can learn and move forward. And so let's make those kind of beginner transactional practice mistakes here in biz orgs rather than your first year of practice. So I try, I try explicitly to create a very safe environment in my class, both the discussion piece, which you asked about, but also in submitting, um, for instance, problem sets for an asynchronous class. I, um, I call about, about two thirds of the weeks in my asynchronous class, they turn in a problem set that's based on the reading and lectures that they've done. Um, but I explicitly call them knowledge checks and you still get all the points as long as you've turned it in on time and you show uh, substantial effort to engage with the problems, even if you are wrong. <laughs> so again, that idea of being able to make mistakes um, because that's where we learn. You did one thing that I sounded really sensible and interesting to me, which was to provide students with model answers right away immediately after they submitted their answer. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why you do that, why you think it's effective, and whether you follow up with those 
problem sets, answers, and model answers in discussions or in some other format? Yeah, you know, frankly, I started doing the model answers because it was just taking me too long to do all the grading, get all the grading back. I had 150 um, BizOrg students, let's see, this was fall 2019. And I knew that the delay that I was causing in getting their grades back was hampering their learning. So, so I tried this model answer circumstance, especially with these knowledge checks, right, where I'm going to give them the points anyway. And what, what they told me was, we're second career students doing law school online. You know, we're often doing it around kids naps and work schedules and other responsibilities. So it's really helpful to turn something in and then immediately have access to a model answer while we're still thinking about it, while we can correct our thinking, um, and that they found that super helpful. So really good for them and also good for me because now on just these knowledge check assignments, when I go through, I'm not providing a ton of feedback. I'm more skimming to see if I have somebody who is really not getting it, then I can follow up. Um, but it's you know fairly hands-off for me once I have created that good model answer. This year, I have gone the extra step of creating a model answer. This was recommended by somebody on Twitter. I wish I could remember who. Um, a model answer which gives both an example of an excellent answer and an example of like a, mm, it's right, but it doesn't have enough analysis. It doesn't, um, you know, quite uh, quite meet the mark. And and I did that because I found that my students who were not quite meeting the mark couldn't necessarily um, compare their work against the excellent model answer. They would feel that they were they were hitting all those buttons, even if uh, even if they clearly weren't. So this was recommended to me to to create that bifurcation. So this is the first semester I've done that. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more in detail about some of the hands-on simulation based approaches you've used to teaching business organizations and how those have translated to a entirely remote context. So one of the really interesting things about this change to blended or partially remote learning is that it creates shifts in the in the timing of the semester. And so you might have periods where you have lots of time with your students that are perfect to do kind of a mini simulation within the context of a larger course. So at the Mitchell, in the Mitchell Hamlin blended learning program, um, our students traditionally pre pandemic came to campus for a really intense week that we called capstone and capstone is usually the next to last week of the semester. And so it's a really good time to apply and put together what you've learned. That's the name. So, um, at Capstone, one of the things that I would do in business organizations is to do a three-sided shareholder negotiation um, where I have a, a founder of a small business, um, the partner that they brought in as their, um, you know, first an employee and then a partner when we studied partnerships. And then now they're being approached in our uh, simulation by a private equity investor to put in a lot of money and really ramp up the business. And the students are assigned to represent one of these three characters and have to negotiate to a term sheet. So they have about 
three or four hours over three days um, to, to try to negotiate to the particulars of this term sheet. And it's fascinating because in the process, they realize uh, how much they have to go back and apply the concepts of minority shareholder uh, rights and corporate control that we have been learning about. <laughs> they've read the book and they've listened to the lectures, um, but now that they need to put it in practice on behalf of a client, it's another step harder um, and it really helps cement that, uh, that important knowledge you know, in their understanding. So it and it's also fun. <laughs> well, so Jen, one of the things I couldn't help but think about reading your paper was the extent to which so many law school classes are at least potentially transactionally oriented classes. I mean, I teach a lot of intellectual property classes. We usually think about those as litigation-oriented classes, but of course, a lot of intellectual property practices advising clients in advance uh, how to avoid litigation. So I wonder if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on whether you think some of the techniques, approaches, models, ideas you describe in the paper might translate to other parts of the law school curriculum. You know, that's a great point. I guess I would encourage uh, you and others uh, to just expose our students to the kind of documents that are important in a transactional practice of that practice area. Um, I think it is a disservice to our students to have them graduate without, um, for instance, in real estate, you know, ever having seen a commercial lease or uh, in uh, finance practice, having ever seen a credit agreement. They obviously are not going to be experts on those forms, but having to navigate a large document like that, to think about the pieces of it, um, to think about which pieces are negotiable is a valuable exposure that will help them hit the ground running. Um, as junior lawyers. And it, I think it's something that practicing lawyers hiring our students now expect. And so as law schools, we can add value there. Great. Well, Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show and for writing this excellent paper. I mean, I while reading it and while talking to you, I've had a bunch of ideas about things I want to do in my class. And I'm sure that other listeners will be having the same kinds of hallelujah moments and uh, maybe hopefully incorporating some of this into their classes in the spring. Well, I'm so excited to hear that. And if anybody wants to uh, tweet and let me know what you came up with or what you're working on, I would I would love to hear it. We've been giving some thought to our present career, and we fear it's a bit deleterious. 
Oh, deleterious. A $5 word. Sure, the cover charge is on, isn't it? Although our present salary is stupendous. Terrific. Gigantic. Colossal. Although we love the billet, do you send us? I get them. I read them. Oh, so you can read. Unless we make a switch, we never will get rich. But we are rich, haven't we? Trees, bees, skies, and butterflies? Yeah, but try and pay the rent with one of those. And so we have decided after this engagement's through, we're going into business, it's the only thing to do. We'll spend our dimes for the New York Times to read the arrivals of buyers. We'll shed bitter tears for accounts in arrears when we look at the failures and fires. We're going to get stenographers who know the latest tricks, and we'll do our dictating every evening after six. Big business, big business, business is the backbone of the nation. The fellows who do well are those who buy and sell the product of American creation. Big business, big business, I'm going to be a businessman myself. You'll never be successful in an office or a shop. I wouldn't. No, unless you're bald, you're bound to be a flop. Why? Bald-headed men are most successful, they come out on top. In big, big business. You take the life of Louis Zilch, that famous merchant prince. He started on a shoestring, he's been tied up ever since. He came here on a sailing ship, which proves beyond a doubt. If there's anything inside of a man, the sea will bring it out. America, America, of thee, of thee we sing. You can't go wrong where you belong, says every man a king. It's just as good in Italy. It is? Oh, what the use? Why, certainly. In Italy, it's every man a deuce. Still, the word is not deuce, but ducci. Eddie Ducci? Not Eddie Ducci. We just received a market tip to make our profit soar. The tip is this, do not miss American Cuspidor. Oh, the market's like a woman who's been very well rehearsed. Like a woman? Sure, it looks its best when it's ready to do its worst. We're going to work with might and main like bees within a hive. And 70 will find us twice as smart as 35. You're twice as smart at 70. That is if you're alive. Yet you only can do half the things you did at 35. Big business, big business. And when we have some merchandise to sell, we'll ask for several offers, then we'll take the highest bid. But if at any time we see our profits start to skid, we'll open up a chain of flats like Polly Adler did. That's big, big business. 